0: I feel like I'm missing out because it seems like everyone is either starting a side hustle or becoming their own boss. And you know what these people are hearing a lot? Cha-ching! That's the sound of another new sale on Shopify. The all-in-one commerce platform that helps you to start, run and grow your own business. Shopify is the commerce platform that's revolutionising millions of businesses worldwide. Whether you're selling stuff that you create yourself in the fashion, home and garden, or health and beauty industries, or perhaps if you're upcycling something to give it a whole new look and use for sale, Shopify simplifies selling online and in person so you can successfully grow your business. Covering all of your sales channels, from a shopfront-ready point-of-sale system to its all-in-one e-commerce platform, Shopify can even get you selling across social media marketplaces like Facebook, Instagram and TikTok. Full of the industry-leading tools ready to ignite your growth, Shopify gives you complete control over your business and your brand without the need of learning new skills in designing or coding. And thanks to award-winning help and with an extensive business course library, Shopify is ready to support your success every step of the way. Now what's lovely about Shopify is that no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify will be there to empower you with the confidence and control to take your business to the next level. It's a real possibility powered by Shopify. It's time to get serious about selling and get Shopify today. What are you waiting for? Sign up for a £1 per month trial period at shopify.co.uk slash enthusiast, all lowercase. Go to shopify.co.uk slash enthusiast to take your business to the next level today. shopify.co.uk slash enthusiast. Hello all and the very warmest of welcomes to the True Crime Enthusiast podcast. Your regular slice of those tales of true crime often unfamiliar, not covered to death. That I've scoured the UK and Ireland to bring to you from my corner of North Wales. Doing so is myself, Paul, the creator, host, and true crime enthusiast of the show's title. I am accompanied by the hairy football pixie, my true crime enthusi cat, as always, and yourselves, the cherished enthusiasts that make the show go around. Complete us. It is amazing as ever to have you join us today, which I thank you so kindly for doing so. And I do hope that as you have. It's for a tale that finds you and yours all good, all safe, and all well. So the case, cases rather, that I bring to you this time around are ones that several people have gotten in touch over the years to suggest and ask if I would be willing to cover, which of course I am. There are only a very select few tales that I won't touch, and this is certainly not one of them. In fact, it's been a tale that's stuck with me for many years that I've had earmarked for many years now. Well, since I began The Enthusiast, really. And it's time has finally come here. It spans three unsolved cases. I know they're not the most popular, but there you go. And some six years separating them in total. And whilst the three have long been tentatively linked, there is nothing to definitively say that they are. There's no forensic evidence suggesting this. And indeed, personally, I don't believe that they all are linked. Which I shall explain as the episode progresses. Indeed, there's a fourth case often linked that I believe is so strongly unconnected to these that I've omitted it completely from here. Perhaps it's a tale for another time that, as it is one that I've written about before. There's also differing amounts of information available for research concerning each individual case that I've included here. But I have researched each as best and as fully as I can. As we do with unsolved cases here on the show, I shall save my thinking out loud until each tale has been recounted, which I stress is not me definitively saying this is what has happened. Rather it's more educated speculation based on the available evidence. The tale is also better known under a more blunt, direct name, which I could have titled the episode but I've opted for the one I've come up with myself. The episode contains details and descriptions of crimes and events, including descriptions of injury detail, that some listeners may find disturbing and or distressing, so please use discretion whilst listening in all. Bearing that in mind, please join the true crime enthusiast for an episode that I've entitled The Spectre of the East Lanx Road. You'll find similar patterns and sounding circumstances with each of the three accounts I bring you here, which I'll bring in a chronological order. As with each of the three poor souls you'll meet, all three come from that so often vulnerable cross section of our society those who indulge in sex work. Now, the reasons why people enter the sex work industry are complicated and varied, while some may see it simply as a way to earn extra cash. Many others are driven to it by homelessness, or poverty, or more commonly, to feed a drug addiction. For sex workers who are out on the streets and away from any kind of protection, the dangers can be very real. Rapes, violent assault, and even murder are only the wrong customer away. They're vulnerable because they are more accessible, more willing to get into a car with a stranger, and to go off somewhere where they'll be isolated they're a lot less likely to be missed straight away as often they're estranged from or have strained relationships with their immediate family and sadly in the cases of murdered sex workers i don't believe they're always given the same treatment as others far too much emphasis is given to their lifestyle which sad but true the murder of a respectable middle class man or woman would get or be given well not here because no victim is less important than another one no matter what we head back first to 1988 and to the canning street area of toxteth in liverpool then the city's red light district and which was then the home and beat of 31 year old linda suzanne donaldson born on january the 21st 1957 Linda's mother Elaine was only 15 years old when she gave birth to her, the father moving back overseas and never to meet Linda, and having problems of her own, Elaine allowed her mother Emma to adopt Linda as a baby and raise her, with Elaine soon afterwards going to live in the south of England. Reportedly, it's understood that Linda was not aware who her real mother was until much later in life, and by 1988, was not in touch with her she was educated in Crosby reportedly to a reasonably high standard but showed no particular outstanding skill academically though most likely as was described she would have most likely found her vocation in working with animals being an animal lover from an early age who would cycle to a stables miles away from home just to be able to feed the horses there Upon leaving school in the mid-1970s, Linda had enrolled on a hairdressing course, though whether she'd completed this or had dropped out beforehand isn't recorded. What is recorded is that at age 18, Linda had left home and married, though this wasn't to last, and by the time she was 20 in 1977, the couple had divorced. At 21 years old, she moved once again, This time into a house in the Waterloo area of Liverpool with a boyfriend, and it is understood that the couple also lived in a commune in the Netherlands for a while before returning to Liverpool. She split from her partner in 1984 and would sofa surf with various friends before moving into a flat on Canning Street in Toxteth, as I said, Liverpool's then red light district. Now, this breakup heralded a rapid downward spiral for Linda as she fell in with the wrong crowd became mixed up in drugs and soon developed a heroin addiction a habit which in order to finance Linda began earning money as a street sex worker her working name was Tracy which was the name that most of her customers would have known her by now although she was a sex worker Linda was careful in a number of ways and regularly visited a nearby clinic set up to prevent the spread of AIDS, the Merseyside Regional AIDS Centre, where she would pick up free condoms and needles as part of the clean syringe scheme. She would also strongly promote this amongst the other sex workers who worked the Square, as it was known, then Canning Street and Faulkner Square beat, where she was well liked and known as a friendly person who nobody had a bad word to say about she was also somewhat discreet too her grandmother emma who linda still saw every sunday for dinner had no idea she was a sex worker and it was noted that if she was taking a regular client home then she would do via a back alleyway so as not to offend her neighbors a police spokesperson said later she was somebody who realized the dangers From what we've been told, she's not the sort of girl prepared to go with just anybody. She was very, very careful about choosing her clients. In the face of this, though, though she had regular clients, Linda wasn't averse to getting into cars belonging to curb-crawling strangers either. Sadly, that's what that desperation for a drug fix will do. She was no stranger to the courts and reportedly was due in court on tuesday the 18th of october of that year but generally the appearances were related to soliciting personal possession of drugs or acquisitive crimes committed in order to feed her habit there's no reported history of violence and neither is there much in the files to suggest she herself had previously been a victim of crime It was also noted that Linda had been invited to appear on the Kilroy morning television show in December 1987 about sex work where she talked to the host Robert Kilroy Silk about the dangers of that very issue also being quite vocal in saying how she would not like to live with her children where prostitutes were bringing men home in the television program she had said are we supposed to work on a deserted street and get mugged and raped and maybe attacked The police in Liverpool wanted us to work on a deserted street in front of the cathedral and then they thought about it a bit more and they put us back in a residential area because it was less dangerous. She had then said, I certainly don't walk past when someone's got kids around. I wouldn't dream of chatting up a man right in front of kids. Not many girls will. Reportedly, by October 1988 also, Linda was reportedly weaning herself off drugs, for she was using less and less, and though she was still working the streets, was seeing less clients. By all accounts, the kind-hearted woman wanted to become a support worker in the drugs field, helping sex workers and users with the benefit of her own experiences, something I'm sure she would have been nothing but a success at. On the night of Monday the 17th of October 1988, from 7pm Linda had been on her regular spot on the corner of Canning Street and Catherine Street, distinctive because she had always, without fail, worn black. It was noted that at some time before 10pm she'd visited a shop in Windsor Street to buy some groceries, described as part of her normal routine, and then after doing her shopping had returned to her flat to feed her pets a dog and three cats which she and her flatmate had rescued as strays from the streets and to have a meal however by 11 p.m linda was back out at the same spot to meet clients her routine being to work until the early hours of the morning and then to sleep in late she was spotted by two plain clothed policemen one who knew linda just after 11 p.m talking to a client and was also seen by her flatmate at around 11.30pm. Another sex worker that had been working in nearby Grove Street, just off Canning Street, said later that at around the same time, she had been approached by a man whose behaviour made her feel uneasy. She said that the man had asked her if she was doing business, and had then asked her if she knew anywhere dark. Now, uneasy at this, she said that the man had a bag with him, that made a clanking sound when he put it down, as though it was filled with tools. And she'd refused him business because of all of this, to which he went on his way. Now a photo fit of this man was later released, describing him as being about five foot eleven inches tall, aged in his late twenties, and wearing a white polo neck sweater. About two hours later, at one thirty AM in the early hours of Tuesday the eighteenth of October, the woman that had met the man with a clanking bag met Linda, and said later that they'd talked about business, which had been fairly quiet that night, and said that she told Linda about the worrying punter that she'd met, after which she'd hailed a taxi to go home. However, she said that as the taxi pulled away, she noticed Linda moving off towards a dark-coloured car that had just come by, which had pulled into Back Canning Street detectives can only assume what happened next in those pre-cctv days and that it is that linda got into a car either that of a familiar punter to her or a complete stranger and was driven away to her death because by the following morning when linda didn't return home her flatmate had reported her missing now the a580 road or as it's better known locally in the northwest the East Lanx Road is the UK's first purpose-built inner city highway and which links the cities of Liverpool and Salford, built to provide better access between the port of Liverpool and industrial areas in East Lancashire around Manchester. Since the road was officially opened on the 18th of July 1934 by King George V, it is used by thousands of vehicles every day and gives great access to Liverpool, Salford and all of the other towns situated along its path, as well as quick and easy access to the M6 motorway, which it joins fairly near Haydock Park Racecourse. Just over four hours after Linda was last seen by her friend, between 5.45 and 6.45am on that Tuesday, and about 18 miles away on the A579 Winnick Lane, near Lee in the borough of Wigan in Greater Manchester, which is just off the East Lanx Road. A maroon-coloured Ford Granada Mark II car was seen parked up in the gateway entrance to a farmer's field there. There were no reports of anyone seen in the vehicle, but it was reported that the vehicle seemed to have remained parked there for up to this hour. Later that day, in the early afternoon, an elderly couple in a car, Mr and Mrs Lease, on the way to visit their daughter, pulled off of the m6 motorway at junction 22 to join the a579 road to lee and soon after at about 1:30 p.m pulled into the very same place where the maroon ford granada had been seen earlier that morning dorothy lease later explained that because they'd been driving for a while having come up from south wales they would usually stop about then to stretch their legs however When they'd pulled over into the field entrance and walked about that afternoon they saw what they thought was a human body lying in a gully alongside the hedge. Mr. Leese went over to check and found that it was indeed a body and it was later determined to be the naked body of Linda Donaldson. Apart from leaving her behind the hedge no effort had been made to conceal her remains the senior investigating officer detective chief superintendent ken clark told the manchester evening news at the time we are looking for a maniac a sadistic killer who could strike again the type of man who could do this to another human being defies description the mutilation was probably done in a bid to conceal identity now his description was apt for a post mortem, determined that Linda had been killed with two stab wounds to the back, thought to have been inflicted by a heavy eight inch bladed knife. She had then been stabbed a further eight times after death, though where exactly has never been revealed, and then her killer had defiled her body even further, for Linda's breasts had been cut off and were missing. A definite attempt had also been made to remove her head by severing it at the neck in fact so badly mutilated had she been that linda's grandmother emma was only able to definitively identify her from a scar on her earlobe she described later it was a harrowing experience at first i couldn't recognize her i couldn't even cry it was terrible an ordinary death is bad enough but something like this is just awful you can't even begin to imagine can you it was reported that police had put together a team of a hundred plus officers in the hunt for linda's murderer in a joint investigation run between admiral street police station in toxtoth and lee police station and the full tommy lee jones from the fugitive bit was performed checks at dry cleaners for anyone depositing blood-stained clothing were made They looked through drains in Liverpool Districts 6, 7 and 8, which were searched for a possible murder weapon. And appeals were even made to the Chinese community in Cantonese. Everyone who was known to Linda was interviewed and police went through a number of what they call TIEs, trace, interview and eliminates. And while they didn't find any particular difficulties which you might anticipate over sex workers and or their punters closing ranks or failing to come forward, no viable suspect emerged from this. House to house inquiries were also conducted throughout the Winnick Lane area, and a week to the day after Linda was found, police set up roadblocks to interview people who might have been in the area on that fateful morning, which led to the Ford Granada parked at the spot. Earlier that morning, coming to police attention. A widespread appeal for the owner or owners of this car to come forward to eliminate themselves from the inquiry was made, but as no one was forthcoming, it's very likely that this was Linda's killer's car. Tire tracks could be seen coming off the road and up to a wooden gate near the scene, which someone would have had to get out of the vehicle to open and indeed to close again after leaving plaster casts of footprints at the scene were made as were imprints of these tire tracks which traveled a short distance to the gully where linda was found and then looped around to come back out through the same entrance and back onto winnick lane though there was nothing remarkable about the tire tread that would help narrow down the search for this mystery vehicle nor were there any mud traces suggesting in which direction it had headed after leaving the field the lack of blood at the scene suggested to police that linda had been killed elsewhere somewhere between liverpool and winnick lane where a murderer had had plenty of room and light to carry out the murder and mutilation something he had taken his time over Wherever it was he also had access to running water as linda's body had been thoroughly washed down before it was left in that field most likely to remove any traces of forensic evidence left by her killer. However, this location has remained a mystery. As of the whereabouts of Linda's clothing, her black miniskirt, black ankle boots, black jacket and a studded belt, they've never been found. Nor of her distinctive gold earrings with two gold leaves on each, her nine-carat snake-like gold ring, a blue denim shoulder bag containing cosmetics, and her white plastic-fronted address book. Though the investigation was thorough, and Linda's murder was even featured in a Crime Watch UK reconstruction in December nineteen eighty-eight, a link to the episode available on YouTube is in the episode show notes. All of the leads dried up, and police were left with just two possible lines of inquiry. Firstly another sex worker had said that she'd seen a man approach linda donaldson twice on the night she was murdered she said he approached linda twice that evening as late as midnight each time she didn't want anything to do with him she described the man as between six foot and six foot two inches tall aged 42 to 45 years old of a thin build wearing gold-rimmed square spectacles a green quilted old-fashioned anorak, a crew neck jumper and dark trousers. His facial features included dimples on either side of his thin longish face, which were prominent when he smiled. His hair was mid-brown, going grey and parted at the right-hand side with both of the sides brushed back, which appeared to be either a smart haircut, but could also possibly have been a wig, and this was in a fixed position. Generally his appearance tended towards the untidy now though an appeal was made for this man to come forward he never did and was never traced the second was that a week after linda's body had been found police received a report from another liverpool sex worker who said that in the early hours of sunday the 23rd of october at about 2:30 a.m. near the university buildings in mount pleasant she'd been confronted by a knife man it was reported that she'd fled for help from someone in a parked car after the knifeman had put the knife to her throat and demanded his money back, though she could offer no details of the vehicle, nor a description of this knife man, leaving police to doubt as to whether this incident had indeed happened. By the time Linda had been cremated at Thornton Crematorium on Friday the 18th of November, and her inquest in Lee, held in July 1989, had ruled a verdict of unlawful killing. Police were no closer to catching her killer. They had interviewed 415 curb crawlers, identified 103 of Linda Donaldson's former clients, one of whom, a wealthy businessman, had anonymously offered a thousand pound reward to catch her killer, had spoken to just under 10,000 people and had examined 6,000 cars during their investigation, but noted that one of the problems with their inquiries was the fact that many of the people who picked up sex workers in the red light district came from outside the Merseyside area, and so would have been missed. They had examined every possibility. Was it a regular punter? A stranger killing? They'd even considered that it was the work of more than one person, and the possibility that a killer's lust for murder had been triggered after watching a TV dramatisation of the Jack the Ripper murders. For on the day Linda was killed, a Jack the Ripper ITV miniseries starring Michael Caine had been shown on TV to commemorate the 100th anniversary of the Whitechapel killings. They had also arrested two people during the course of the inquiry, a 54-year-old taxi driver who was arrested and questioned for three days and a person appearing at Liverpool Magistrates Court in relation to another matter but both had been released without charge and later ruled completely out of the inquiry. Alison, a friend of Linda's, said approaching the first anniversary of her death No one can understand why Linda was killed. She was always telling us to be careful, to keep away from dark alleys. She'd sometimes stop girls getting into cars, and she wouldn't get into a car with just anyone, no matter what. You've got to be careful, twice as careful since what happened to Linda. You've usually got your regulars anyway, and you never get into a car with more than one person in it. Sometimes girls will work in twos, because that's safer. In the 34 years since Linda's murder, the case has been reappealed several times on various anniversaries and several people who knew Linda have spoken out. In 2014, Lynn Matthews, who had known Linda from many years before whilst carrying out HIV prevention work in Liverpool, said The murder of Linda Donaldson in 1988 brought home to me how dangerous this work is. The memory of hearing that her badly mutilated body had been discovered dumped in a field will haunt me forever. Linda was not just an unknown face staring blankly out from the front page of a newspaper or a TV screen, but someone who had come from my own community had gone to the same school as me and knew many of the people I knew. I will also never forget the anguish and suffering of her elderly grandmother who had raised Linda. The only way she could confirm the lifeless body on the slab was that of her granddaughter was by a scar on her earlobe. Had Linda not been using drugs, she would never have turned to sex work. By the 30th anniversary of Linda's murder, a £50,000 reward was in place, and remained so, for information leading to the arrest and conviction of her killer. Martin Bottomley The head of Greater Manchester Police's Cold Case Review Unit told the Manchester Evening News on the 30th anniversary reappeal The murder of Linda Donaldson shocked everyone who worked on it. She didn't have the best start in life and through no fault of her own was forced into a lifestyle she would never have chosen for herself. She ended up losing her life in horrific circumstances and her killer has never been found. There are many unanswered questions, but we believe there are people out there who know what happened to her. 30 years is a long time, but it's living memory for a great many people. The original investigation was a joint investigation by GMP and Merseyside Police and went on for two years. And several people were interviewed, but no one was convicted. This is the latest reinvestigation. We do have some DNA evidence, but that itself because of the nature of Linda's work, wouldn't necessarily help us convict, so what we need is a name. I'm sure there's someone out there who knows who the killer is or has grave suspicions. I would ask people to look at their conscience and make that phone call. Maybe you lived in Merseyside or the Lowton area at the time and recall something that seemed out of place. Perhaps you've heard someone talk of the case since and thought something they said seemed odd or out of character the smallest pieces of information can often lead to fresh lines of inquiry that can help police crack unsolved crimes such as this this was a young woman with a good heart if you know something look into your own and volunteer this information to the police sadly justice has come far too late for emma donaldson Who has today gone to her grave not knowing who was responsible for the death of the granddaughter she had raised as her own? She remained largely tight lipped about Linda's murder over the years, preferring to keep her own counsel. But shortly after the investigation launched, back in 1988, she told the Liverpool Echo newspaper An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That's what I say. He should have the same done to him as he did to her how could i forgive no one could he could strike again this man must be caught soon emma shared the fears of detective chief superintendent ken clark that linda's killer could strike again fears that echoed on the 2nd of january 1990 when police were alerted to a blood-stained dress and clumps of torn out hair which had been found at a lover's lane near mosley at the bottom of New City Road, only a couple of miles from Lee, and again only just off the East Lanx Road. The size fourteen beige button fronted St. Michael's dress was heavily torn and had buttons missing, was heavily blood stained, and was found lying on a path near to a pair of brown St. Michael's size three and a half court shoes with gold strands on the heel, a chunky gold chain, and a gold-coloured circular earring about an inch in diameter a youth also handed in a black handbag containing a set of keys but no identification which he had discovered on the other side of the hedge about 30 yards away there were reportedly the signs of a scuffle at the scene and a blood-stained dress scattered jewellery and torn out clumps of hair is alarming and a car was reported by residents of New City Road as driving away at speed late on the previous New Year's Eve, but no one reported an assault that could be linked to this to police, and no body was found following an in-depth search of the area. Frustratingly, there is nothing further reported about this as to whether the owner was ever identified or not. A very alarming find, though, I'm sure you'd agree, and I'm sure you can see why those fears were echoed that Linda's killer had struck for a second time. Just over a year later, and just over three miles from where Linda had been found, those fears were again echoed, and this time were seemingly confirmed. Pennington Flash is a 170 acre lake created at the turn of the 20th century by coal mining subsidence, mainly from nearby Bickershaw Colliery, and it dominates the nature reserve and country park of the same name that it sits in. It's popular all year round with outdoor enthusiasts, wildlife lovers, runners and dog walkers, and in particular, anglers. Three such anglers who were out fishing on the cold afternoon of Sunday the 6th of January 1991 were John Faulkner his then 11-year-old son Simon and Simon's friend Scott Brooks who had parked up at the car park on the slag lane end of Pennington Flash and were setting up their respective individual swims at the pit rook site a shallower part of the lake by there They'd not been fishing long when the two boys spotted a bundle floating in the water, and Scott got his line tangled in the bag, pulling it in towards them as he reeled in. As the bundle came closer to the bank, the boys noticed it seemed to be a number of refuse sacks inside a larger bag, like a sheet or a duvet cover, and, to their horror, they noticed a human leg sticking out of one of them. John Faulkner said later, Simon came over and mentioned that Scott had fished something out that looked like a bone with blood on it. Knowing what children's imaginations are like, I didn't think much about it. The boys called us over, and I saw the lads had hauled in several black plastic bags wrapped in what appeared to be a white bed sheet. There appeared to be a bone sticking out of one bag. I tried to open one of the black bin bags with my feet, and saw there was what appeared to be a human leg. John immediately alerted police and shortly afterwards the macabre discovery was fished out and revealed in its full horror. The six foot by four foot white laundry bag had contained five black plastic bin liners each of which contained different dismembered parts of a naked young woman. Now many years ago I spoke to a reporter from the Wigan Post newspaper referenced this case and who told me that a rather graphic set of photographs that had been taken by a photographer who was rapidly on the scene had ended up with the Wigan post, though they were never published. She was kind enough, for want of a better word, to send me a copy of this, which I of course would never share or reproduce as it makes for disturbing viewing. Indeed, for a while afterwards it affected those who had discovered the body. Scott's mother, Sheila Brooks, said later, He's having nightmares about it. He says every time he closes his eyes, he sees the legs sticking out. Wouldn't you just stay? The body had been in the water for no longer than 24 hours, and two days later, on Tuesday the 8th of January, was identified by a female friend of the victim. Like Linda before her, 27 year old maria christina rakenna had been a sex worker and had worked the Minshall street whitworth street and canal street areas of manchester in the two years she'd been up there now out of the three accounts i'll mention in this episode maria's as she was known is the one that has the littlest available to research about it very little is known about her early life except that she was born in the Kensington district of London in April 1963, had worked in sex work in London until 1989, when she had moved up to Manchester after amassing several convictions in the capital for soliciting, and was reportedly a mother of one, though no further details are mentioned of the child, so this may possibly be incorrect reporting. She may even have been known as Christine or Chris, and had the working name of Sharon. Try as I might researching all combinations of her possible name, I could find very little about her. What is known is that she lived in the upper Brook Street area of Manchester's Longsight district, though reportedly was somewhat nomadic, and stayed with friends lots too. Maria, as we shall refer to her, would usually work through the night soliciting for clients until around 5 or 6am like Linda, to pay for the £100 a day drug habit she had by then developed, and had amassed a number of convictions here, like in London, in the two years she'd been in Manchester. Coincidentally, also like Linda, on the day her body was identified by her friend Debbie, Maria had been due in court to answer a charge of soliciting the resulting investigation into her murder revealed a picture of a well-liked cheerful woman who though trapped into such an existence by her drug habit was remembered fondly as a talkative loud outrageous bubbly girl who loved to laugh and who spoke expressively with her hands as she did outrageous was a word fondly used more than once to describe her and so widely liked was she that several friends of hers in the sex work industry actually clubbed together to pay for a funeral and interment at Manchester's Southern Cemetery. Piecing together Maria's final movements, aided by a former boyfriend of hers, Victor Bailey, whose home on Freeman Walk Maria regularly stayed at, It was established from speaking to other sex workers who knew her that in an earlier conversation that she'd had with a friend on Monday the 24th of December 1990, Maria had said that she had had enough in Manchester and was getting out and told her friend that she was going to go and stay with a woman that she knew over the Christmas period, Bev, saying that she'd known the woman for years and that she lived up in Leeds or Leeds, although her friend said she didn't quite catch which place she'd said. However, she was still in the Manchester area on Friday, the twenty-eighth of December, as she, as was custom, made her regular visit to the newsagents around the corner from her flat, where she bought her usual multipack of crisps and fed the newsagent's dog Rambo the four-finger Kit Kat she would buy him each morning. As an aside, slightly, I know you're not supposed to give dogs chocolate like that, but my mum and dad years ago used to give our dog. 21 two finger kit cats a week and he used to proper devour them i tell you he would drool like the bloody dog from turner and hooch as you were unwrapping it he'd have three a day this friday was the last time maria was seen by her news agent now maria's whereabouts over the remainder of 1990 the 29th to the 31st of december are unknown and police considered the possibility that she may have spent this time with her killer. The last positive sighting of Maria that there was, was by the friend who ultimately identified her a week later, Debbie, at 10.15pm on New Year's Day, when the two met soliciting on the corner of Minshall Street and Canal Street. Debbie recalled how Maria was struggling to use a clipper lighter to light a cigarette due to the cold weather and recalled asking her about some gloves that Debbie had recently got for her, which Maria said she'd somewhat carelessly misplaced. When a car approached Debbie from nearby Auburn Street, and she agreed business with the punter, as she got into the car she shouted, See you later, to Maria, and watched her friend, dressed in a white or black miniskirt, pink or beige pullover round-neck sweater with floral design, pearls and sequins on, and a three-quarter length dark blue cotton coat with drawstring bottom walking away down towards canal street that's the last positive sighting of maria rakenna alive the last time debbie would see a friend again before she identified her however a woman that was possibly maria was reported as being seen on the 2nd of january and perhaps even again on the 3rd of January at 4am near Watson's Shabeen drinking den on Broadfield Road in Moss Side, sat in a brown-coloured Cortina Datsun with another woman and an elderly West Indian driver. This is a sighting that's never been confirmed, however, nor is the report, and this is possibly mere macabre imagination after the report of the discovery of Maria's body, that maria was seen on one of these nights in question getting into a car with two men inside but then a third who was hidden in the back seat sat up as the car drove away in fact all that can be confirmed following that sighting on new year's day by debbie is that at some point over the next four days maria rakenna met her killer was strangled by him and then her body dismembered with power tools thought to have been a chainsaw or circular saw due to the precision and smoothness of the cuts that had severed her head, arms and legs. The killer had then unceremoniously placed her body parts into bin bags, placed each into a laundry bag and thrown her into Pennington Flash. In March 1991, Maria's murder featured as a reconstruction on Crime Watch UK, which like Linda's, Contained something unique for a Crime Watch reconstruction, the actual voice and footage of the victim. At the beginning of December 1990, Maria had featured in a BBC programme, Close Up North, a documentary in which she was spoken to while street working and talked about the dangers of sex work, and a clip featuring her was shown as part of the Crime Watch reconstruction. Almost chillingly prophetically, She was quoted as having said, There's a hell of a lot of danger going on. Some girls get raped, some mugged. There's been girls down here that's been murdered, that's been put in the canal. A month later, Maria sadly became one of the statistics that she'd mentioned. During the Crime Watch reconstruction, incidentally, in which the actress playing Maria in the reconstruction, Mandy Hester, was propositioned herself by curb crawlers during the filming of. There were three main points of appeal that the senior investigating officer, Detective Superintendent John Smith of Wigan CID, had to make. Firstly, a couple had said that at about seven forty p.m. on Saturday the fifth of January nineteen ninety-one, that they'd driven up Slag Lane near to the car park close to where Maria's body had been found the following day and saw a white van reversing into the car park with two men inside they said that one of these men the driver seemed to be wearing a peaked cap now this white van was also seen by three people that had been walking by on their way to dump some rubbish at the slag lane recycling center across from the car park They said that the white van appeared to reverse twice back into the car park to avoid oncoming traffic and looked suspicious, as though they were trying to avoid being seen. They said that then, when they were closer to the tip, they saw the van drive out at speed without its headlights on. Later on, at around midnight, a couple that had been driving up Slag Lane saw a Datsun Cherry car parked in the same car park. The driver said that when he saw it he mentioned to his wife that it must have been a courting couple or something like that but then said that they then thought that would be strange because the car had its headlights on. Now police were unconvinced that either of these vehicles may have had a connection to Maria's murder but they were very firmly vehicles that needed to be eliminated from the inquiry. However the occupants of neither of these vehicles came forward and they have never been traced the third point of appeal in one way could be considered a bit more of a definite focus although equally was a needle in a haystack the four foot by six foot bag that maria's dismembered body parts had been contained in was found to have been an old style laundry bag and which contained a serial number of a cleaning tag inside it an inch in length it bore the distinct serial number 08230. Now, out of each of these points of appeal, it was this latter one that most of the hundred calls to the studio and the incident room received were concerning, though this, and the two vehicles, were lines of inquiry that ultimately led nowhere. By almost two years into the inquiry, police had taken 3,590 interviews. And had quizzed 1,392 motorists and still didn't have a clear motive for Maria's murder. Was it possibly drug related? Had she attempted to rip off a punter and he'd taken the ultimate revenge? On the subject of revenge, one Reddit poster I came across whilst researching offered the information that Maria was apparently a prosecution witness in the trial of a London pimp back in 1988. Which was part of the reason that she'd left London for Manchester, and offered that given the gruesome nature of what happened to her, that hers could be a revenge killing. Now, where this information came from, because I couldn't find it whilst researching, so I can't ascertain if this is correct or is just mere speculation. Like Linda's case, Maria's has been reappealed several times over the years and due to the extensive mutilation of both women and the very close geographical distance between the deposition sites both cases have long been linked quite persuasively i think too for the episode i took a trip out and visited all of the deposition scenes connected with the accounts that i mention here and with maria's and linda's cases i was particularly struck by the closeness just three miles, a mere couple of minutes journey in a vehicle. I also made some videos whilst I was there, which I'll share in the episode thread that's up in the show's Facebook discussion group. Although obviously, you've got to understand that the topography of each area will have changed in the three decades we're talking about here. Maria's case is also one that the GMP Cold Case Review Unit is looking at though with an open mind as to any connection between hers and linda's detective inspector jeff arnold said on the 30th anniversary of the discovery it was a horrendous case and it demands to be looked at again because of what she did she was very vulnerable and often women in her position become targets for the most masochistic members of society forensics have come a long way though And this is a file we will be turning to throughout the course of our investigations as it stands there are no forensic links between her death and linda's but we do have forensic material in both cases and we will continue to investigate without a name to put to the material and the nature of the women's work in which they would have worked with hundreds of men it is very difficult to detect but the cases will never be closed and we will not stop until we find out who killed maria and linda now that's a sentiment which you can understand completely and yet the spy descents just won't go away and i think to myself more and more the same person has done this but not necessarily is responsible for the final account i bring to you of the episode We head forward more than three and a half years after the discovery of Maria's body and 13 miles west of Pennington Flash back along the East Lanx Road. On Saturday the 6th of August 1994 a team of cyclists from the Liverpool Century Road Club based in Netherton were undertaking a 10 mile time trial along the Rainford Bypass and whilst milling around at the start point close to the former Wheat Hotel on the corner of Ormskirk Road and Bushy Lane in Rainford, at about 1.30pm, one cyclist opted to nip into a carrot field belonging to nearby Hollyfold Farm to urinate beforehand. Before he could do so, the 28-year-old computer engineer, he's never been named, was drawn to what he thought at first, like the old adage, was a tailor's dummy so emaciated was it lying naked face down with a head in a clump of bushes however he soon realized that it wasn't it never is is it and said later i ran back and got a friend to confirm what i'd seen we then called the police and made sure that no one went near i told the police where i'd been then waited for them to arrive i carried on with the cycling but i think i was in a state of shock as if cycling that day wouldn't just completely go out the window, eh? What's going on there? The body was later that day revealed to be that of 23-year-old Liverpool resident Julie Finlay, after she'd been identified by fingerprints due to her having a criminal record for petty crime. Her clothing was missing, and according to a later post-mortem, she'd been killed through strangulation up to 12 hours before discovery. Inch wide ligature marks to her neck, suggesting possibly with a belt. Injuries to Julie's upper body and arms suggested she'd been involved in a struggle, but there was no sign of any sexual attack. Her mother, Patricia, who had last seen her the previous afternoon, recalled later. On the Saturday, I got a phone call. Have you heard from our Julie? She's not turned up. Is anything wrong? I wasn't even dreaming that anything was wrong. Then on the Saturday night, the police knocked on the door. I don't really recall what was said. Honest to God, I didn't believe it. I got my other daughter to come with me and I knocked on every door of people who knew Julie. It was like I was floating on air. I kept thinking she was going to come in later that morning. Like Linda and Maria, Julie's life was a sadly familiar story. Born on the 1st of August 1971, the second eldest daughter of Albion Patricia Finley, who lived in Finch Lane in Dovecot, Julie had grown up in a close-knit and happy family alongside her elder sister Karen and her younger siblings Sharon, Kate and Tony. She'd left Tree Comprehensive School in Highton in 1987, working for a while in hairdressing and hotel work, but around her 18th birthday, her parents began to notice a change in Julie her personality, her attitude, that kind of thing. And she eventually confessed to them that she was using magic mushrooms. By a year later, Julie's parents discovered she was using cocaine and heroin and had developed a sizable habit. Over the next three years, she would have several spells in drug rehabilitation clinics, would stay with family members and improve, but would ultimately relapse. And by 2004, Julie and a half chinese boyfriend ing who was 10 years older than her and another drug user had a flat in Falkner square in toxteth the area where six years before linda donaldson had lived though it's also reported that they were dossed down pretty much wherever they could now julie did have a criminal record consisting of shoplifting to feed a habit but a habit was something that she battled with And despite her setbacks, something that she really did want to conquer. Her mother Pat recalled years later. She was a good girl with a kind heart and always smiling. Everyone loved her. Only a few days before it happened, she told me she was going to get herself straightened out, find a job, and start getting fit. This time, she really seemed to mean it. She wanted to give up so badly, but told me it was something she could no longer control she described it as a disease in the end we stopped asking questions so she wouldn't have to tell us lies and that's what it becomes with people sadly isn't it a disease it was equally reported that julie had several close friends who were sex workers understandable as she lived smack bang in the middle of liverpool's then red light area but that she was not a sex worker herself, and certainly she had no convictions for soliciting on her criminal record. Her parents and family have always strongly denied that she was a sex worker, and yet, being realistic rather than trying to be unkind here, I feel that this is more of them being protective of their dead daughter's reputation. After all, The majority of people involved in sex work do it because it is the easiest, quickest way to feed a drug habit, and I think it likely that Julie saw it the same way and was no exception. Though due to her having no convictions, it was perhaps something that she'd not seriously embraced or had only just started doing. Saying that, whatever Julie did or did not, and the same goes for Melinda and Maria completely, it is completely immaterial to anything. It's her as a person we are focusing on and acknowledging here. Not what she did. I told you, no one is more important than another on the enthusiast. One of the investigating team, Detective Superintendent Bob Denmark, put it fabulously, saying, Although Julie may have had some question marks against her lifestyle, her death is as much of a tragedy as if she had been a bishop's daughter too bloody right julie hadn't lived with Albion and patricia for several months but she'd gone around there on the afternoon of friday the 5th of august 1994 to catch up with her parents taking the opportunity to have a bath there and missing her father as he'd gone out when she'd arrived She'd seemed fine and in good spirits and had even arranged to come back around the following Sunday for Sunday lunch with her family. As she set off that afternoon at about 5.30pm, her family could never have considered that that would be the last time they saw her alive, on the start of a three decade nightmare for them. In the subsequent murder inquiry, investigators were able to piece together that Julie was seen several times over the course of that Friday night around the Huskisson, Canning and Hope Street areas. A sex worker who knew Julie had seen and spoken to her on Grove Street, where Julie had told her that she was supposed to be meeting someone at 11pm that evening. Now this was possibly a friend of Julie's that a later appeal was put out to trace an engineer named david from the ormskirk area about 35 years old big chested and having a beer gut who had some connection with a group that used to rehearse in liverpool on a friday night whether david was traced or not isn't reported three months after the murder in november 1994 a woman came forward to say that she also saw julie finley at about 11:20 pm on the friday night Running across Pembroke Place opposite the dental hospital, recalling it because she almost ran her over, having to break very hard to avoid hitting the woman. She said that she was running across the street towards a man who was standing beside some railings. The man was described as being five foot ten inches tall to six foot, twenty to twenty three years old, having dark hair and wearing dark clothing, though the witness described as quite smart the witness also noted that there was a car parked nearby though she could give no further details she said that she'd come forward after seeing a poster detailing the murder put out by the Liverpool Echo newspaper and that she was 99% sure that this was Julie Finlay now due to the witness's description of what the woman was wearing and the physical description she gave short very slightly built light brown gingerish hair tied back and wearing a white blouse, black trousers, and black boots, police were convinced that this was Julie, for it matched her description. She was just five foot three and was painfully thin due to her drug use, weighing just six and a half stone. She'd also been seen wearing matching items as to what was described. Later information received suggested that this man she'd been running to see was possibly a drug dealer who went by the name of Nellie. Now, it's unknown if this was Julie's regular drug dealer or not, but her regular drug dealer was reportedly spoken to and denied seeing or arranging to meet her that night. So, was this a punter? Clothing believed to be Julie's, consisting of a white top, dark boots, dark trousers and bra, were spotted on Wasteland at the corner of Low Hill and Prescott Street in Liverpool again noted as having been a popular haunt for vice girls and only about a quarter of a mile from where julie was last seen at around 4 p.m on the 6th of august the day she was found but police were only informed of this 10 days later when the man who had noticed these came forward he'd remembered this because the clothing was in good condition and seemed to have been carefully placed there not just abandoned Now by the time police were able to search, this clothing was gone, though they were able to recover a bra which was identified by Julie's sister Sharon as being like one that she'd lent her, and police believed that the other clothes had been taken by someone unaware of their significance. Possible that someone passing the spot might have seen them and taken them home because they'd been of such good quality, and they appealed for anyone that might have done this to come forward eight months into the inquiry on the 20th of april 1995 a woman called the incident room claiming to have the black jeans and white blouse that julie was last seen wearing but gave no further details and rang off before her own details were obtained this woman has never been traced along with two other people who had called the incident room and julie's family anonymously a woman claiming to be a friend of julie's Helen from Huskisson Street, quite possibly a sex worker, had rung her family twice, once on the Saturday to cancel a meeting before Julie's body was discovered, and then again the following day to ask them somewhat insensitively if the victim was Julie. Then a telephone call was received by the police incident room within two weeks of Julie's murder from a woman calling herself Tina, who claimed that on the night she was killed, Julie had planned to meet a taxi driver from Prescott in order to obtain money from him. Tina rang off after she promised to meet with the police, but never did so. The telephone call she had made was ultimately traced to a telephone box in Blackpool. Despite repeated appeals over the years, none of these people have ever come forward police also considered the possibility of a link between julie's murder and an attack on a sex worker in jericho lane in the egg area of liverpool at around 9:30 p.m on the 29th of september 1994 in this incident a man using the name mike had picked her up in toxteth driving a silver vauxhall cavalier or ford escort with a vehicle registration plate number beginning m83 and after driving to riversdale drive had attempted to strangle the woman when she persuaded him to let her go he stole money from her and then pursued her briefly when she escaped down riversdale drive though he fled when the woman flagged down a passing motorist the man was described as being in his late 20s or early 30s five foot seven inches tall clean shaven with straight dark brown hair and distinctive tattoos on his forearms, including a snake and dagger design on the left arm. He'd worn a black t-shirt with a yellow print design, navy blue shell suit trousers, and trainers, she recalled. He told me he'd been with two prostitutes a couple of months ago, and had killed one of them. That makes you think of Julie Finley. I really believed he was going to kill me. He grabbed me round the throat and said, I'm going to kill you what's it like not to breathe police said at the time they were treating this information very seriously and were investigating the woman's claims though frustratingly nothing further is reported about this attack in the early stages a core team of 15 detectives worked tirelessly to probe the mystery killing Though this was expanded to a fifty-strong murder team working out of the incident room at Farnworth Street Police Station, and in the first six months alone, more than nine hundred statements had been taken, three thousand five hundred people had been traced and spoken to, and thirteen people arrested and bailed. Yet by Monday, the thirteenth of February, nineteen ninety-five, when a verdict of unlawful killing was recorded at Julie's inquest in Ormskirk. By Coroner Howard McCann, police were no closer to catching Julie's killer, and the following week, on Friday the 24th of February, she was laid to rest at a service at St Dominic's Church on South Dean Road in Highton, before being interred at Springwood Cemetery in Allerton. So, where did police turn when all avenues of inquiry had seemingly been followed up? Of course, now was the time for a crime watch reconstruction a reconstruction of julie's last known movements featured in the april 1995 edition of the show still a masterstroke getting rid of it bbc you utter twats and in which detective chief inspector francis Yule, the officer leading the inquiry bought the points of appeal that i've listed here it did yield several calls but that one crucial piece of information sadly wasn't forthcoming however it was to be reappealed again on crime watch in the november 1995 edition following some startling new information being received about 10 months after julie's murder police were contacted by a man that said he had picked up a hitchhiker from the windle island junction of the rainford bypass at 10 30 a.m On Friday the 21st of July and as they'd approached the scene where Julie's body was found the passenger apparently became very agitated so much so that the driver became concerned about his mental well-being and asked him what was wrong the young hitchhiker then told him a very disturbing story almost a year before in the early hours of the morning of the 6th of August His motorcycle had broken down on the same lay by where Julie Finley's body was found nearby, and saw a white transit van parked in the same lay by, parked at an angle as if to obscure the view into it from the road. Thinking it may be a courting couple, and as I say I visited the scene and looking at it it is a very popular road for this, undoubtedly, you'll be able to see on the video I'll be posting up in the Facebook thread he had ignored this and began messing about with his bike until he heard bangs and screams coming from the van when he made his way over and opened the van doors he saw a young naked or partially naked woman who said to him help me help me for god's sake help me he'd just been about to offer assistance but instead left the scene After a man then came over and told him that the woman was his girlfriend and told him in no uncertain terms to mind his own business and to get on his way, which the hitchhiker said he did. Surprisingly, yes, he did just that and failed to call the police. Police believed this account to be true as the story had included information that only they knew about police also added that the hitchhiker was either the last person to see julie finley alive and that he'd seen her murderer up close or that given the information that he knew he was in fact the murderer himself and appealed for him to come forward to rule himself out the reappeal also included a photo fit of this hitchhiker who was described as being in his mid-twenties five foot eight inches tall clean cut with short blonde hair in a crew cut he had told the driver that he was visiting his grandfather who lived in Ainsdale in the Southport area and the driver being from St Helens himself mentioned to police that this man was local due to his accent also believed to be from the St Helens area now this hitchhiker who turned out to be a 23 year old psychiatric nurse was finally traced by January 1996 having only just realized that the extensive appeals were describing him as a result he was spoken to by detectives and ruled out of the inquiry though it is not reported as to whether he was able to offer a description of the man in the white van that he'd seen indeed there is no description available of this man frustrating because this hitchhiker had come face to face with Julie and a killer now, nine years after the murder, another witness came forward with a sighting to support this story as he said he'd saw a young woman who met Julie's description arguing with a man at about twelve thirty a m on August the sixth outside the then wheat chief public house in Rainford. It is today an Indian restaurant, which is just fifty yards or so from where julie's body was found later that day the unknown man was attempting to force the young woman into a white transit van either d e or f registered detective chief inspector francis yule of merseyside police said this is the most important lead that the inquiry team have received in many years there is every indication that the young lady seemed fighting off her attacker could have been julie finley however this is another sighting that's never been confirmed yet another frustrating aspect of julie's story nor has it been explained why it took nine years for the witness to come forward in the three decades since as i've said julie's case has been reappealed several times over the years it's certainly the one most prominent out of the three I've described here and a £20,000 reward offered by Crime Stoppers still remains in place but it still remains unsolved and her family are still left heartbroken. By the beginning of 1995 so devastated were they that they were prepared to move house. Devastation that wasn't helped by them insensitively receiving a poll tax demand for Julie Some eight months after her death. They were also not to receive any compensation for Julie's murder either, as the scheme to award this that had been introduced by then Home Secretary Michael Howard had been ruled unlawful. The family lived with the pain of reappeals coming to nothing over the years and could only gather at Julie's grave on her birthday and the anniversary of her death each year. Seventeen years after her murder, on what would have been Julie's 40th birthday, her family were shocked at what they found when they paid a trip to her grave in Springwood Cemetery. Julie's sister Kate actually walked past her grave, not recognizing it, before doing a double take. As the previous time the family saw it, the stones bordering the grave were sinking and the decorative chippings on top were weather-worn. But in recent weeks, someone had dug up the stones, had repainted them black, and realigned them so they were no longer sinking the stone chips on the top had been replaced with bright white new ones and a bunch of plastic flowers had also been left on top julie's grave was the only one that had been touched like this and the family say whoever did it clearly had a personal reason for doing so her mum pat said we've asked all the friends and family we can think of and none of them have done it they all said they would have asked us first so we want to know who has this looks like a personal touch to us someone who knows or has found out where our julie's grave is has gone with tools and done a job that would have taken some time and effort it's scary more than anything because we just don't know this could be the person who killed julie and has a guilty conscience it's certainly someone that the crime has affected on some level. Sadly, Julie's father Albie has even gone to his grave himself not seeing justice for his daughter, and her mother Pat, now advancing in years herself, clings to the hope that she will see justice for Julie before she dies also. Speaking to the Liverpool Echo newspaper in 2021, Pat said, it was so important to him to get justice for julie he had all julie's pictures and all these little mementos next to him he would always say looks like we're getting no justice for you girl julie's dad has now passed away and he went to his grave having never seen justice delivered julie would have been 50 on august the 1st and who knows how her life would have turned out had she not been taken from us I know it's been 27 years since she was murdered but I want to see justice while I'm still alive and see somebody pay for what they did to Julie. Speaking about her daughter's killer Pat said she's never believed it was someone from Liverpool. She explained. I said right away no one in Liverpool has done that. I knew right away it was an outsider. I thought maybe a lorry driver or someone who's picked her up and then that was the end. I know 100% no one from Liverpool killed her. We've spoken to everyone who knew Julie and someone would have slipped up by now. The article concluded by saying how every night Pat still looks at her daughter's photographs pleading for answers to her killer's identity and motive. She just seems to stare back at me, she says. It must always be so hard, not having the answers must just give that extra pain at losing someone, mustn't it? Mick Duthie, Director of Operations at Crime Stoppers, said at the time Our charity is supporting the investigation by offering this reward to get justice for Julie's family, who remain desperate for answers. We would like to thank all those who have contacted our charity with information about Julie's murder since we launched our appeal. But we believe that there are individuals who have valuable information that have yet to contact us. No matter how insignificant you think your information may be, I would encourage you to contact us 100% anonymously, as your piece of information may help lead to an important breakthrough in the investigation. You owe it to Julie's loving family to do the right thing. Now's the time to speak up anonymously and tell us what you know. We're here to help people who for whatever reason, feel unable to speak directly to the police. Like the millions of people who have trusted us since we began in the late 1980s, we absolutely guarantee you will stay 100% anonymous, always. If you have any information concerning Julie's case, or that of Maria's or Linda's, then Crime Stoppers can be contacted using an untraceable, anonymous online form, a link to which will be in the episode show notes or by calling 0800 555 111 that's 0800 555 111 computer ip addresses are not traced and for telephone calls there's no caller line display no 1471 facility calls have never been traced from it completely anonymous so the thinking out loud bit comes here then, and I reiterate: I'm not suggesting what I say is gospel. It has to remain speculation. These three cases have long been tentatively linked by the press as the work of an individual with a sobriquet, the East Lancs Ripper, though they've never been officially linked by Merseyside or Greater Manchester Police. As I said, there's no forensic evidence able to link them, and personally. I don't believe that all three are linked. I think that's a bit of sensationalism by the press there. Two of them, yes, I do. But Julie, I believe, is the work of a different killer. And I would suggest the very real possibility exists that the killers of all three women are now serving life sentences for other unattributed crimes. The lack of mutilation, the lack of washing her body or placing her into water and the discovery of julie's clothing abandoned is enough to suggest to me that there are two different perps here and there is a strong argument out there for christopher halliwell being responsible for julie's murder for he's undoubtedly killed others he hasn't admitted to the victimology suits halliwell he lived very near to the scene back in 1994 and has owned enough vehicles in his time for at least one of them to be a white transit van i don't want to get on to Halliwell right now except what i'll do is point you towards the book the new millennium serial killer written by seeing red co-host Bethan truman and former intelligence officer chris clark which offers up the argument for Halliwell's culpability so much better than i ever could here. now the same book does include linda and maria as being possible Halliwell victims too And while of course there is the possibility that they are, I don't feel this in myself. The victimology, such close proximity of deposition sites, and the mutilation of the body in each case all suggest to me that this is the same killer though. One familiar with red light areas across the country, and certainly one familiar with the East Lanx Road. This suggests strongly to me that this was a commercial vehicle driver. Who perhaps even worked at an abattoir and as such would have possible access to a place with light running water space and tools to carry out the mutilation seen here and of course an abattoir wouldn't need to be cleaned up as extensively would it concerning the mutilation which is disturbing in the case of linda it struck me as possible was she mutilated because her killer had perhaps left teeth marks on her that he could be identified from or was it a strictly sexual fetish or did he just want to defile her further in the case of maria what's the purpose of dismembering her body unless it's an act of pure hate or for sexual enjoyment personally i think the latter and would he have done this to linda also was he disturbed before doing so it's frustrating as there are so many questions and i invite your own thoughts and feedback here what do you think so what it boils down to for me is if if these are linked and my gut tells me that they are we have a hater of women a user of sex workers who has extensive knowledge of red light areas across the country And for whom extreme mutilation is his thing. I have someone particular in mind as a possible, someone who's been questioned in the past in relation to both Linda and Maria, a terrifying and monstrously evil killer who is currently serving two life sentences, unlikely ever to be released from prison. And who I shall bring you the account of next time around, as I've gone on far long enough here as i say i do invite you to get in touch and share your own theories concerning each of the cases which you can do so in the show's facebook discussion group or through any of the show's social media links if you wish to i really don't mind wherever with that then it's on to the next account and a proper disturbing tale this one will be too i thank you very kindly for joining me and the Pixie here today it means the world as ever that you do And he's just woken up, actually, after spending the second episode in a row, sleeping through most of it. And all that remains for me to say, then, is that I've been, I still am, and hopefully still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast. Wishing you all good and safe times, and I shall speak to you very soon. Take care, all, stay safe, and goodbye for now.